Hi, I'm Mark Lynch of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with scholars in the field. Uh, with me today is Marwan Mekawar of York University. Uh, Marwan, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. So um, let's talk about Morocco. Um, you know, it's been five years since uh, the Arab uprisings. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about this Moroccan model for limited constitutional reforms, the, uh, the, the election of an Islamist government. Um, what's your reading of, the, of, of where Moroccan politics is today and how it got there? Well, Morocco definitely seems to be doing better than its, its neighbors, right? But it all seems to be based on an illusion, right? I mean, Morocco, the country is experiencing a number of structural um, issues, uh, one of which is the overbearing role of the monarchy, which sort of cannibalizes everything that's important and leaves everything else to the um, government. And well, like what? Like what do you mean? Um, all the big projects, for instance, are adult are the exclusive property of the of the king, obviously. So. Um, um, I'm thinking about something like Masdar, for instance, mm-hmm. right, which was spearheaded by the king. I'm thinking about all the other infrastructure projects, which are personal projects of the monarchy. So everything that works in Morocco and is business-oriented mm-hmm. belongs to the monarchy, is dealt with by the monarchy, and all the real hard things that needs to be done, the educational law, the reform of the educational system, the reform of the justice system, are left to the government, which is much weaker, has much more um, leverage, and of course, these things are not done. So on the one hand, we have this facade of big infrastructure and airports and things, that are being built and shiny uh, thanks to the, the king. And on the other, all these things that are underneath are not done, right? So the, again, the education, the justice system, corruption, all these things are not being tackled. And of course, it was just, you know, kicking the can a bit further down the road for, uh, for the same kind of dynamics that happened in Tunisia and elsewhere in the uh, Arab world. And so with the constitutional reforms back in 2011, uh, did they really change anything in this system, or was it just superficial? Well, even before the constitutional reform, the actual text, of, of, before um, it was changed, the actual text was not that bad, if it would have been applied. So, so the same thing can be said about the new constitution. The constitution is good on paper, but it's all about the application of uh, the articles of the constitution, which, of course, is lacking, right? And uh, so that's, that's the big problem. So the text is okay. The text is, um, was convincing for many people uh, in 2011 and 2012. So many members of the um, uh, pro-democracy movement of the uh, February 20th were really pleased with the new constitution. I'm talking about Berber's movements. I'm talking about women movements. Uh, this you know, small class of liberals were very pleased with the constitution. But the big problem is its application. So immediately after the constitution was approved, we saw the government trying to implement this new penal code that was very restrictive. Um, the government is also trying to come up with all these, no, it's coming up with all these random policies. Um, I don't know if you've heard about it, but Morocco just, you know, for, oh, just um, stopped the uh, voice over uh, internet um, protocol, VoIP um, services. So Moroccans do not have a access to Skype and WhatsApp and Viber, and they're very displeased with it. And this is part of a broader crackdown on the media and free expression? Absolutely. Um, a couple of months ago, um, a historian, a very respected historian uh, in Morocco named uh, Martin Mungib was, um, was you know, forbidden from leaving the country. Uh, investigative journalists like Mohamed Masouri were put in jail. So yes, it's part of a broader yeah, uh, attack on, on, on freedoms and, and in the country, absolutely. Has it mattered at all that they that the uh, PJD, uh, the Islamist Party, uh, was able to form a government? Has it had any significant political effects? It, it had a significant political effect in the sense that it again sort of you know buoyed the uh, the position of the king, right? So they so that's exactly what happened before. 
um, Andrew Hassan II, when um, when the leftists were brought in government for the first time, right? So they, they were in the position, they were very virulent, and as soon as they make it to the government, then they sort of, you know, are faced with the realities of power, which is, of course, again, cannibalized by the palace, so very, very little room for, for maneuver, can't do much, and then are sort of, you know, gradually, uh, uh, sort of gradually lose their credibility vis-a-vis -vis the general public. And the only remaining institution is, of course, the palace institution. So what did the PJD try to do? Did they focus on cultural issues and Islamic issues? Did they focus on economic issues, social issues? I mean, within that small space that they had, what kind of government were they? Well, they started to reform a number of limited projects, you know, and then they were able to succeed in a number of elements, right? Uh, they tried to reform the transportation system. They, they came up with those, this very ambitious program, but again, very soon realized um, that they were dealing with a system that was much harder and much more nebulous than they, I guess, imagined at first. Right? So, they were all, so they were gradually forced to sort of retreat from all those projects that they had at first, to the degree that you know, a couple of years ago, the president of the, so the, um, the head of, uh, of the government, Abdelik uh, said that his program was the program of the king. So he moved from a position where the, the party was relatively virulent, willing to um, engage in difficult decisions, to a system where the party is just trying to do with whatever little room of maneuver they have in very symbolic issues like transportation, trying to sort of, you know, remove the very uh, sclerosed system of, of uh, transportation licenses, which are used as a, rent as a rent generation mechanism in the country. They tried to do that. They couldn't. Uh, so again, very little um, um, progress in that front. You said they're losing uh, credibility. To whom? I mean, uh, who, to who the general benefits? public. So for instance, the latest decision to um, stop the uh, VoIP in Morocco mm -hmm. uh, is seen by many in the country as a decision of the, uh, the government and, and is angering large parts of the, uh, the population, so all those young people whose only contact with you know, um, uh, the outside is through the internet are very, very unhappy with that decision, for instance. right? What about, so you mentioned before the, uh, the February 20th uh, democracy movement, um, and looking back at, you know, over the last five years, you know, how would you evaluate uh, what they achieved and what they failed to achieve? Well, it, it, the, 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 so I talked to a couple of activists last, last year, and, and they all said the same thing. They all said it was a wonderful experience, they learned a lot, they made tons of new friends, they realized actually um, things can change if there's enough energy and enough will behind it. So in that sense, it sort of created that hope, right? And that hope it didn't go away. So all this generation of people who engage in politics and were able to at least you know, change the configuration for a bit are very happy about that. Now, of course, they all moved on. Most of them moved on. Uh, the uh, the, the um, February 20th movement is almost dead, right? They still hold some general assemblies in Casablanca and Rabat, but really, you know, just to discuss technical issues on how to yeah. conduct mobilization. So the movement is almost dead, but the people who participated in it, you know, had access to that, you know, that uh, moment where they sort of, you know, were able to imagine a better world, a better Morocco, and the way to get there. Um, of course, they were unable to sort of, you know, make um, the palace give some real significant concessions, right? So one of the biggest demands of um, the February movement for instance, was to sort of, you know, uh, ask the king to sort of get rid of his um, friends, right? El Hima, Fouad Ali El Hima and other people who sort of were, are seen locally as, as, uh, as, you know, largely, you know, are seen by many in Morocco as corrupt and engaging in these uh, neoliberal practices that, don't go well with large parts of the population. So that demand for uh, the king's entourage to be uh, put under check did not, was, not, was, not, uh, was not approved. 
which sort of, you know, discouraged many people in their movement. And so you say a lot of them have just kind of moved on, uh, gotten out of politics. Or, or they're doing some interesting things, right? So I'm thinking about someone like Hassan al-Mukhlis, who started who's doing theater in the streets. Again, so semi-political and social. Um, so, so what happened, that moment, that moment of freedom and, 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 and transformations and exchange led to new ideas, really an explosion of ideas. Um, so a lot of people engaged in arts and music and theater, which, you know, which is a good way of keeping the flame alive mm -hmm. until the next time, until, until next time. When Moroccans look around, um, you know, look to, look to Tunisia, for example, do they see that as a, as a model to follow or as a cautionary tale? I mean, how, how do Moroccans view the Tunisian experience? Well, it depends who you talk to, right? So, so and again, it depends on what time of the day you talk to, uh, you talk to people. Um, so, as long as, so Tunisia, I think the consensus is Tunisia is doing generally okay. So, so people look at the Tunisian model positively in general. But of course, people look more uh, into the Syrian model and the Libyan model. That's what they're afraid of, right? So in that sense, people are more risk averse than uh, willing to sort of you know, see what a good model can be. Yeah, I think that's that's true, kind of across the region. Yeah. Uh, the the negative uh, the negative effects of Syria and Libya on people being willing to take those kinds of risks anymore. Um, in many ways, it's easier to sort of you know remember what happened in in in, in Libya and and Egypt and and Syria than to imagine a better world for for mm -hmm. a better Morocco or future Morocco. Has Libya had any direct effects on Morocco? Uh, not really, only in terms of um, recruitments with the Islamic State. So a lot of people who couldn't, can't make it to um, Syria are sort of making it to Libya instead. Hmm. So a number of Moroccans are moving to Libya in the last, we've seen a number of Moroccans moving to Libya in the last few months or last year. But that's, uh, that's kind of a recent thing. To Libya, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Syria is a more uh, is a more historical thing. Uh, well, historical three yeah. or four years ago. Iraq, of course, is, is much older, right? So the networks of, 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 uh, of you know, um, I guess, young men going to to, to Iraq um, goes back to two thousand and three. And so, if you look at Morocco now and compare it, say, to uh, two thousand ten. Um, you know, looking at kind of the broad sweep of the political system, the economy, you know, the, this kind of the generational politics, that sort of thing. Do you see it as basically the same as it was in 2010, or have there been enduring effects of, uh, of you know, of 2011 and beyond? Has the system simply reproduced itself? Uh, not only the system reproduced itself, but it, reprodu it reproduced itself even better. Uh, so there's a new version that's even better and even more attached to power and even more authoritarian in many ways than it was in 2010. So I'm thinking, for instance, about the PAM, the Party of Intensity and Modernity, which is a party created by the palace, by, you know, um, um, supported the palace. Well, that party, for instance, was, you know, um, almost delegitimized prior to 2011. Uh, it was seen largely as this creation that was meant to sort of, you know, delegitimize all of the parties and real position. But now the PAM is competing against the PJD and might win the next elections. So in many ways, the, the picture looks a bit gloomier than it was in 2010. And the economy is in worse shape? Uh, more or less the same thing. So we still have relatively higher levels of unemployment, especially in cities, especially among people, among young people. And of course, decisions like... Uh, really stupid decisions like, you know, f forbidding people from using mm -hmm. um, Skype and WhatsApp and Viber anger those young people even more, right? People who were able to sort of, you know, get a living by teaching lessons abroad or by, you know, 
engaging all kinds of different you know, side businesses mm -hmm. um, to like, you can't, can't do it anymore and I'm quite unhappy about it. So what are the things that, um, that Moroccans are focused upon kind of that are outside the realm of what political scientists tend to look at? You know, so I begin this conversation and I want to know about elections and political parties and the Islamist movement. Um, you know, but what are the things that uh, the Moroccans would be focusing on in having this kind of political discussion about, the, about what's changed, what hasn't changed? Well, uh, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, what kind of uh, topics Moroccan have been talking about recently? Um, it's interesting, right? So I'll, I'll take one example, right? So the, I don't know if you've heard about it, but this uh, movie called Much Love by Nabil Ayush, which created a big controversy in Morocco last year because it used crude language. It depicted a big problem in Morocco, which is prostitution. Right? And it, it did it in a very crude way. So Moroccans, for the first time, had access to this movie that showed you know, women talking court language on television and talking about oh, oh, prostitution in Morocco. And, and I think one of, the, one of the big conversations happening in Morocco right now is this value shift, right? And how to deal with modernity, really. Uh, and how to deal with you know, um, changing social structures, changing relations, women working more, uh, families not having the time to sort of you know, take care of their elderly, all these things are having a deeply, deeply destabilizing effect on Morocco. So I think uh, Moroccans today are engaging in a big conversation. They're you know, experiencing modernity really for the first time and, and, and you know, trying to understand it really and dealing with the consequences of it. And is this crackdown in the media that you were talking about uh, getting in the way of that, or are people finding alternative ways to have these public discussions? Well, public discussions happen on Facebook, essentially. They happen, of course, within families, but they happen mostly on, on Facebook and social media, right? So um, there are all these pages, very popular pages, where people comment, and these pages serve as a consensus-forming mechanism within the country. They're very popular. They, you know, they start as humor pages where, you know, jokes and things, and then they gradually turn into politics and sort of give the temperature of, uh, of, of the country, right? Right? and the things that matter and the things that don't matter, right? And so far, most important things for most Moroccans are you know, corruption, the state of the infrastructure, uh, the marginalization of the rural sector, villages that are now isolated because it's no den and they can, don't have access, people inside don't have access to um, larger cities, et cetera, et cetera. And so, it, so this, it sounds, from what you're describing, do you see Morocco as kind of in kind of a state of reflection almost? Almost Not, a state of reflection, yes. Yeah, th there's no immediate sense of political crisis, but there's a lot of issues that people are talking about in, in new ways. And to me, one of the most interesting questions, of course, is what does this, this generation which experienced empowerment and developed all these new tools, you know, at what point does that manifest into something that actually changes the system? Well, that's again, this is what I'm coming back again to the sort of void yeah. um, thing, is that sort of, you know, listening to what people have to say about that interdiction, um, young men and women are saying the same thing. They say, listen, you can't go back, right? Once we tasted freedom, once we, once we started using Skype, you can't just take that away from us, right? We can't go back. So in that sense, I think, you know, there's almost a ratchet effect, sort of, you know, um, in terms of uh, personal freedoms and liberty, that's very hard to sort of, you know, transform or sort of go back. Uh, so once, once you sort of people taste um, a new way of life, and once people start working and engaging certain behaviors, it's very difficult to make them change. Um, so, yeah. Well, that's great. Um, well, so you've been listening to uh, Marwan Mekwar of York University. Uh, this has been the Pull Maps podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you.